0: Welcome to Jewelry Artist, where we examine the art and business of making jewelry. Join me for intriguing conversations with jewelry artists who will inform and inspire you. I'm Katie Hacker, your host. My guest today is Charles Luton-Brain. He's a master goldsmith and an instructor, and he invented the metalsmithing technique of fold forming. So I'm excited to have him here today. He's going to tell us how he invented that and other things that he's working on. Charles, it's so wonderful to be able to catch up with you this way. I met you a few years ago at the Snag Conference, just briefly in passing, and then later I learned how to do fold forming. So I'm excited. (laughs) Thanks for being with us today.
1: Oh, thank you, Katie.
0: You're welcome. I know that you're known for a lot of different things, but we wanted to talk today about fold forming um, because it's something that's been frequently in lapidary journal jewelry artist. And of course, you're the inventor. So can you describe to us what it looks like uh, once it's finished? And then we can talk a little bit about the process of how you created it.
1: Um, basically it's, it's a system. It's like watercolor or, or something like that. So it's a way of making uh, objects and, and images. And, um, um, the functional part is it treats metal, like a clay. as a a mental model. And if you fold material and then do things to it, chop at it, hammer it, then all the layers will move equally. And so basically, um, it's extremely fast. What it looks like is nature, because it is nature. So uh, uh, buds and seed pods and leaves and and other shapes.
0: Yeah, it's so versatile, and the pieces that I have made um, resulted in a really organic look that I, I really like, um, but I know that you can use it in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. What was happening for you when you first developed it? I mean, I'm sure a lot has happened since then, so I want to hear about that too, but w- um, when you first created that technique, what was going on?
1: I had finished um, a bachelor's degree in Nova Scotia, and um, uh, I'd, I'd had a teacher, a Norwegian master, a fifth-generation jeweler named Christian goudernack and he told me to attend this school in Germany, which had been a very important design center for jewelers all over the world. And so I went. And so a number of, of very well-known jewelers also went there. And I went there. But in the previous times, people like uh, Harold O'Connor and Alan Revere and Abrasha. They um, um, had uh, only needed to speak English because at that time, 85% of the students were from other countries. They weren't Germans and um, uh, they'd already finished their masters and they were just there to study design. However, by the time I got there, they changed the school system. So I went to the school and they said, you don't speak German. I've been studying it for months. and go away. And I went back six weeks later and I said, ja und nein, for every question. And they said, you speak German (laughs) now. And so I'd gone to study with one particular guy, but instead I was given the other guy, a man named Klaus Ulrich, who turned out to be extremely good for me. So what had happened was that they changed the school system so that... um, Basically, you couldn't go to art college unless you had a high school diploma, which meant that anybody with skills couldn't go to art college. So um, my professor um, dealt with this problem of suddenly having people with no skills at all um, by um, after a two-year basic training program, you would begin with him. And that's where I jumped in. And you would uh, spend six weeks approximately experimenting. And it was quite difficult for me to understand that he didn't want you to make anything. He just wanted you to mess with the material. And after a couple of weeks, and after a couple of weeks, everybody had certain effects that they could produce. If I melt it and drop it on the floor, it looks like this or whatever. And um, everybody would have seven or eight different effects, things they could do, and everybody's effects were different. And at that point, you would sit down and start to design jewelry about these, these, these things that you could do. Anyway, so um, a, 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 a yeah, bunch it's like of my a jewelry
0: ex- making laboratory, really.
1: Yes, and so a bunch, um, uh, a bunch of my directions um, involved folding, and um, I used to teach workshops on forming using using metal characteristics. Which is the whole thing, and the folding was one tiny little part of it. Um, and then,
0: uh-huh.
1: I, and then I went to uh, so graduate you could spend school. Spend a
0: lifetime using these different techniques.
1: Oh yes. And then I went to uh, graduate school and committed to speak at a conference. And there's nothing that clears you like that. And um, so that's when I kind of codified it and put it together into a, a series of comments and instructions. And then over the years,
0: it changed. Has it taken on a life that you didn't expect?
1: No, I always just considered it another um, useful tool. I um, don't see people um, often using it in, in what I think is extremely original ways, but I think that part of its importance is to um, teach you how to think about the metal in a different way.
0: Yeah, I don't think, I don't know, I haven't taken a, a lot of higher level metals. Classes. Um, but I think that it, what it did for me is kind of opened my eyes to using folding, forging, annealing, kind of the techniques that you already know, but combining them in a way to create something new.
1: And it's a little bit like balloon animals. Um, uh, it's, it's very fast to produce really uh, radical changes in, 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 in the metals.
0: Right. Yeah. And I feel like hundreds. Possibly thousands of people have taken up this technique.
1: Yeah, I think so. A few years ago, we had the first um, um, fold-forming competition um, run by Sue Lacey. And um, the top four out of the five winners were all from England. Interesting. And I had given one, I had given one workshop 10 years before. And, and, um, wow. and so, um, I think, it, I think for the right person, you know, um, um, it's, it's useful, but it was really interesting to see, my gosh, that was one workshop. Look what happened. Right. Yeah. But since then, of course, there's books and videos and it's quite possible to learn a bunch about it other ways.
0: In terms of how you spend your time, do you spend very much time with it these days or have, are you taking on other challenges?
1: Oh, I tend to flip around from thing to thing. So, um, no, I don't think I've done any in a week or so, but you know,
0: I might. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows what the next week will bring? (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the other things that we've um, talked about on a couple of other episodes already in this podcast is people who were very um, inspired by your Jeweler's Bench book. I know Mark Nelson contributed an idea. Could you give us some tips for how people might think about um, customizing their bench or their tools to be more useful to them and what they're doing?
1: Sure. Um, Basically, start with a list of what you want to do at the bench. For instance, I don't solder at my bench. Sixty percent of people do, but um, I don't. I like to keep the chemicals somewhere else and contained away from where I sit. And so decide what you're going to do there. Then. Uh, choose the chair you want to live in. Just make sure this is the best chair. Some people like tractor chairs because they're designed for farmers to uh, sit and work at for a long time. And then once you've got the chair, which uh, when used right, your size should be parallel with the floor, um, then you put your arms out straight and directly under your armpit would be the correct height from the floor for you. And then you attach wood or cut wood off, and you change the height to match that.
0: Change the height of your table to match your chair instead of the other way around, you're saying? Right,
1: right, yeah, because that's the right height uh, under the armpits.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: It's quite possible to make um, um, a a bench out of all kinds of things. Old school desks are easy to turn into uh, benches, and um, um, I've seen doors turned into benches, um, all kinds of things.
0: Yeah, I think it's fun to see what people do with their creative space. I'm limping along with this antique desk that I've had since I was 12. <laughs> um, but I think it might be time to move on.
1: I, um, um, so as I said, uh, the, the way I was trained, when you're sitting, the bench top comes under your armpits. So I was working in this one factory in Germany, and there was a guy there named Artur. And Arthur was about 35 at that time. I would have been like 23. And um, everybody else was sitting with the bench under their armpits. And Arthur, the bench was about the middle of his uh, chest or stomach. And one day I said to Arthur, Arthur, everybody else sits like this. Why do you sit like that? And he looked around and he said, My God, I've grown <laughs> since I was an apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> thank you for that I need to de that <laughs> yeah. surely this thing is adjustable yeah
1: um, yeah that's funny uh, and, and then um, I'm not a fan of drawers but this is a personal choice I find they take uh, uh, if you drop a stone at the wrong angle you can break it I find they take much more time to clean out in between metal types, uh, although there's a few tricks you can do. And um, so I personally prefer a large leather bag. However, that's up to you. And then you sit down and you watch how you work for a while. And after a while, you'll find the empty places where your hands do not go. And those are tool storage places. And so you kind of build your bench functions out from you. For instance, you don't want to bench any deeper than you can reach, uh, because then you'll have to strain. So right, that, you
0: need to keep it cl- everything close at hand.
1: Well, um, uh, within reach, you don't want to twist or, or strain to, to get a tool or to put things away, which is why drawers are not recommended. And um, instead, vertical sliding oh. surfaces like you'd see in a kitchen. you know those vertical drawers that they would sometimes have spices in in kitchens? Oh, yeah. yeah, anyway, so having that kind of thing, where tools are are uh, placed flush on a surface and hanging, that's much faster to use, um, uh, and you can um, get more things more easily. People who have drawers. Well, they never see the bottom half of their drawer thickness. They, get, they don't get that far in.
0: You know, if I'm being honest, the drawers on my desk are certainly storage. You know, they're like cold storage in there. Everything I use is on top.
1: Yeah, exactly. At a certain point, you know, there's just too much stuff in there, and you don't make it down to the bottom of the drawer.
0: Yeah, it's so true. Do you think that... um are there other modifications that you would recommend a jeweler to make right away? Or do you really feel like it's important to be living there for a while?
1: Well, I mean, I think you have to plan for plugs and power and how's that going to get to where it needs to be. And, um, you know, how are the cables connected and, and, and there's, there's all of that. That means you need power at your bench. Um, sure. Yeah.
0: Are there any tools that you think that you're that you're definitely keeping right where you use them all the time?
1: Oh, yes, well, um I mean pliers. like you have
0: your soldering station maybe away, but pliers are on your yes, and everything work is
1: and everything is ranked by frequency of use, um so the things you use most are closest and the easiest for you to put away because um uh, it's quite difficult to learn to do, at, at least for me, but putting things away the minute that you're done with them is definitely faster over the long haul. Um, yeah, so I things know, and, but so, and so it's so hard. And, and, and so things at your bench have to be so easy to put away that you'll actually do it. So I've seen people with a chuck key that's mounted to one of those janitor straps so, um, or, or through a cable through a hook and eye. So after you use it, you let go, and it goes back to its resting place ready for the next use. That's clever. Um, but um, basically, you have to make things really, really easy to, uh, to do. Otherwise, you won't do it. Ideally, the inner rim of the uh, desk should be curving. Like in factories for cleaning, machines are mounted on curving concrete bases because it's easier to clean. And so in a perfect world, the inside of your bench rim is actually curving slightly. And um, all the tools should be in mobile stands. And if you don't want to drill holes, use cribbage boards and cut them up. And the mobile is so you can move them around the shop, but it also... Makes it easy to clean, which means you will clean at least once or twice a year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if forced. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the uh, famous rule that you start cleaning up when you've lost something. Right. Yeah. I actually feel like my um, I, I'm trying to keep my bench really work-oriented uh, just so my jewelry work is here, but I have a very soft, small space. So any other available surface really becomes like this archaeological dig of all the stuff that I've been working on, you know, or that I didn't put all the way away.
1: There was a – when I wrote the bench book and some other things, one of the people that I talked to um, had a small electronics company. So there would have been, I don't know, five or nine different workers, and each one of them – at their isolated sort of workplace where they did soldering and assembly and stuff. And uh, so one day, they put a table in the middle of the room, and everybody had to take all their tools out of their uh, little cubicle and put them on the table. And they were only allowed to bring a tool back into their workspace if they actually needed it. And um, they dropped the amount of tools in the work area by a huge amount. They became thirty percent faster on the assembly jobs, and they had more break time.
0: Wow! Yeah. Just because it made them take a hard look at what they were using.
1: Yes, and and because when you had those, when you had all the other tools, then it's taking time up. For you to deal with them, um, uh, and so if you only have the tools, the yeah. And so, so if you only bring into the actual workspace the tools you need, then you really know what you've, uh, what you want to have there.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: I was talking to a a sheet metal um, guy, an old man on a plane once, and he told me that when he was young. Uh, he was like an apprentice, um, oh, I'm sorry, stained glass, not sheet metal, um, apprentice stained glass guy. And um, the old master was there, and he said the guy, each time he used a tool, he would put it back at the identical spot where he'd got it, each time, back and forth. And as a young man, he thought, he's crazy. But then he noticed that the old guy was significantly faster than all the other glass workers.
0: Yeah, it's all about efficiencies, right? And especially knowing, knowing where you put it, then you know where it is. Mm-hmm. Next time you need it, you don't have to look around. It's so true.
1: And the reason for the efficiency is is to buy you more creative time. The reason that you want to be efficient is this buys you more fun time.
0: Hmm, I like your way of looking at that. I was just going to ask you if if the main thing about efficiency is earning more, you know, being able to get more work done during that period so you can earn more. But I like your idea that it's for creativity's sake, too.
1: So I was a college teacher and I lived in that world. For me, creative time was the most important thing I could find. All right. Because I didn't get much time in the workshop. It was it was like when my kids were small, you got really, really good at working in 15 minute bursts. <laughs> And so mm-hmm. my desire for creative time happened to match up to industry's desire to make more money, and so I I, I do a fair bit of teaching to the industry, uh, but uh, my original reasoning was different uh, than theirs. But it's a nice uh, match.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's an important point that that creative creativity and creative time is worth something too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's worth a lot. So it does. I mean in a way, translate to more dollars, even though that isn't the goal, necessarily.
1: Um, Although, let me tell you, the older you get, the more of a goal it is, in my experience.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you want to be able to make jewelry for as long as you can, right? So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I get that too. What are you working on these days when you have your own creative time?
1: Well, I just finished, I just, they came and picked it up today. Um, I made a uh, very large mace for the uh, Alberta University of the Arts, my, the place I retired from. And as they became a university, so they needed a mace. And uh, so that's, that took about a year and a half to make. And uh, so that was uh, c- quite a lot of uh, problem solving and building.
0: Can you describe it for us?
1: Oh, my. Um, Oh, it's laden with symbolism, so the shaft is a cast aluminum that is sinuous like an elongated snake or a river, making reference to the river. And the surface is covered with individual chased marks, very fine uh, hammer marks. And the bottom morphs slowly towards an abstracted buffalo foot. And in between the cleft on the buffalo foot bottom, it's red. Um, the buffalo foot is because one of the elders I consulted, um, he has a saying which is that education is the new buffalo, and that's that's how he teaches the young people, um, the young native people. So it it the foot is a buffalo foot. At the top end, you may not have seen my jewelry, but it's um, clouds of grids. Think of it like a distorted geodesic dome, and within there are more um, uh, struts with uh, stones, river pebbles, trapped in them. And the whole surface ha- has oh, textured. Wow. The whole surface is textured because it's grown. It's electroformed. It's like coral. And then it is super, super heavy, uh, 24 karat gold electroformed, thicker than plating, many times thicker. And that is, is on the head of the mace, the other end of the sinuous part. And the um, embedded in this cloud of, of rods and stones, gold colored, is the tip of the mace, which uh, turns from the shaft texture into braided sweet grass shape. Yeah. And then it has a stand. Oh, my goodness. And then it has a stand.
0: Oh, it sounds incredible.
1: Yeah, you don't get to where I think it's... I'd love it's, to
0: see a picture of it.
1: Oh, oh, at some point you will. I think... I. Th- I think I peaked at $6 an hour on it, but still. <laughs> <laughs> I did it for the students, really. <laughs> I, want, I, want, I want the students to have mm-hmm. a, um, a nicer experience.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. Well, I know you've been involved, um, but the teaching there and also in so many other organizations, um, and you really, it seems to me, you really believe in passing it on you know what your all these techniques and skills and ideas about jewelry and metals and creativity on the episodes of the podcast that we've done so far we're really kind of getting a peek at what it's like to be an artist and you have so many different viewpoints on that because you've done so many different things um commercially and creatively so i'm interested i'm really happy that you're here to share this with us today and um, it's interesting to hear about your MACE and just the power of giving that to the students I think is really, really cool. Thank you. So I'm interested to see what else you want to do.
1: Well, I've been learning about online teaching and um, had my first successful workshop the other week. It was a lot of work and interesting.
0: Yeah, it sure is a lot of work, isn't it? I think it's so fun to be able to engage with people that way, though, mm-hmm. especially since Often, you're traveling as an instructor, and now you can kind of bring people to you. Mm -hmm. Well, on each episode of the podcast, I also ask um, our guest if you have a favorite stone. Can you tell us about it? It sounds like river rocks might be up there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would. um, Yeah, the ordinary rock has its great charms. um, Because otherwise, you know, there's lots of things that are pretty. Um, you know, maybe I have some memory links with turquoise, um, but I think the river rock, Me it's a nice, it's a nice broad category and that's say uh, yeah, I'll go for that. That sounds fine.
0: <laughs> well, don't take my word for it. <laughs> and I sure appreciate having you here today. Thank you very much for your time, Charles. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To see pictures, please check out our show notes, interweave.com slash jewelry-artist-podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, a special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisform. Tammy Jones is our web editor and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.